Welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Brandon, and on this podcast, we love to have conversations that are intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. Today, we are joined by my good friend, Dr. Jason Sampler. We're going to ask Jason a difficult question, one that's a little complicated, but I think is going to be helpful for us. What is the deal with this alternate ending of the book of Mark? So today I'm joined uh, by my good friend, Dr. Jason Sampler, uh, who's a member of our church here at Mercy Hill, and I've known for a long time. Uh, Jason, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Absolutely, man. I'm so glad you're here. So uh, a lot of people in our church will know who you are. Some people might not. So why don't you just take a minute and introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, So my name is Jason. I'm married to uh, Tara, and we have 10 kids. Um, And uh, we've been uh, members of Mercy Hill for four and a half, five years, something like that. We love it. And um, you'll, if I haven't met you yet, it's just because I'm trying to keep my kids from burning the church down after we let them out of children's church. So, um, but we love it. And if you're listening and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, um, please come and find me sometime yeah. soon. Just, just look around for the chaos and Jason will be somewhere near to the chaos. Either causing it personally <laughs> or trying to put it out because it was caused by one of my children. Well, man, I'm so excited to uh, talk about uh, what we're going to talk about today. Uh, is a topic that's a little confusing for people, uh, but I think it's important, um, and uh, especially when it comes to having confidence in our Bibles. So as a church, we've been going through the book of Mark. Uh, maybe somebody listening has just read through the book of Mark, and uh, <clears throat> you get to the end. You read verse 8 in uh, chapter 16, uh, and then before you get to uh, verse 9, it has a little note, usually, that says something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Tell us, man, what's going on there? Yeah, so um, it's a it's a complicated question, and um, and this isn't really my greatest field of interest, um, but I am interested in Bible translation and Bible uh, uh, how we got our Bible, and so I'm happy to talk a little bit about this. Um, essentially, when we think of books today, we think of going to Amazon and ordering a book, or we think of going to the bookstore, or even to the library, where they have been printed um, uh, off of machines, and they are standardized. there's a standardized text. But that's not what we have in the Bible. When it was written um, thousands of years ago, they were produced by hand. So one guy named Mark sat down and wrote this story to tell his audience about Jesus. And the... Uh, the printing press had not been invented yet by Gutenberg. And uh, so if somebody else wanted a copy of Mark's gospel, it had to be written out by hand. And then if a, another person wanted a copy, it had to be written out by hand. And so for the first 1,500 years of the New Testament and many more years before that of the Old Testament and of other ancient manuscripts, the way we received copies was through a handwritten reproduction. And so sometimes, oftentimes, there, there are um, mistakes in, uh, in handwriting. So think about when um, we have a six-year-old and, and he reads to us every night and um, he's great at reading, but sometimes as he reads, he will accidentally skip a line um, when he's reading through a chapter book. 
And so that happens to us when we are reading as well, or when we're copying by hand, we'll, we'll have to write something down and we'll accidentally skip a line. Um, or maybe we'll skip a word, or maybe we'll just misspell a word. And so we've got thousands and thousands of copies or manuscripts of every book in the New Testament, and many of them have these kind of very minor mistakes. And the good news about our Bible is that because it is so well-known and so um, uh, popular around the world, we have so many manuscripts to compare each other by. And so think about like um, if you went to a car lot and you saw 50 Teslas, and they were all supposed to be blue, and they were all supposed to be the same color blue, like metallic blue. And one of them happened to um, get a bad paint job, and you put all 50 next to each other, you could pretty easily picture which is the one that got the it's bad right. paint job, because compared to the other 49, it kind of really sticks out. And so there's an entire field of, of biblical studies called textual criticism that takes... Um, in, in this analogy, takes the 50 Teslas and figures out w- which is the wrong paint job or which is the bad paint job. And so you've got thousands and thousands of manuscripts of Mark's gospel, of Matthew's gospel, of John's gospel, of Paul's epistles, and where one manuscript might use the word the and another manuscript might use the word a, the question then becomes, which is most likely in the original. And so they put all of the manuscripts together, and through some scientific um, analysis and some other, um, not educated guesses, but but based on what they believe is the, the best approach to understanding the text, um, they're able to kind of produce what they believe is the original text. Right. And so in this particular instance... What we have at the end of Mark is um, differences between the the texts or the manuscripts that we have. And so some manuscripts stop at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Other manuscripts keep going. And so the question becomes, well, what did Mark intend or what did Mark write? And then we try to follow the scholars and follow the manuscripts to determine what is original. And what scholars have come to an overwhelming conclusion in this instance is that verses 9 through 16 were not original to Mark's gospel. When he wrote to his audience, it stopped at verse 8. And it's a bit troubling, I think, for some people, because at the end of uh, verse 8, it's a it's, it's a strange ending. It's a very strange ending. There, yeah. the, we don't we don't get the story wrapped up in a nice bow. There's no conclusion. There's no happy ending. You know, the 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 boy doesn't get the girl, or the the the, the problem doesn't get resolved. It's like uh, in modern day storytelling. Um, it's like the cliffhanger at the end of the season finale of a you know like a six season right. show. And you want to know where's the ending, but you got to wait. And, and in this instance, there's not an ending. Okay, so most scholars believe that the book of Mark ends in verse 8 with this cliffhanger ending. This We don't really know exactly what happened next. Uh, the reason they hold this view uh, is because they are comparing a large number of manuscripts to determine what was original uh, to what Mark wrote when he wrote the book of Mark. 
So what do scholars think happened? How did we get this alternate version or this extended version of the ending of Mark? So what most scholars believe is that as Mark's gospel began to be disseminated among the churches all along the Mediterranean, some would likely look at the ending and say, this seems weird, or this seems like it's missing something. And, and not to be nefarious, I, I don't want to you know, presume that anyone is doing anything on evil intent, but they took it upon themselves to kind of add to the story so that maybe readers 50 years or 100 years down the road who weren't as familiar as Mark's first audience with Jesus's story might have a more complete picture. Right. And what I, what I think happened, and, and, uh, and, and I, I might be wrong about this, but what I think, if you pay careful attention to verses 9 through 20, it, they mirror many of the other stories at the conclusion of the other three Gospels, along with some stories in Acts. And so what it seems is that, and, and this is hard for us to contemplate because sitting before me um, at this table, I have, I have two Bibles, plus I have my phone, which I have access to countless other translations. And, and at my house, we've got tons of Bibles, and we, just, we have a plethora of Bibles. And it's hard for us to imagine... Um, what it would be like in the first or the second or the third century where there really was no such thing as the Bible as we understand it now. Churches might have a gospel. They might have Matthew's gospel, depending on where they are geographically, or they might have Luke's gospel. They might have some of Paul's epistles. They might have all of Paul's epistles. Um, they, d- depending on what year it is, they might have the Apocalypse or the Revelation. They might have James's letter. But nobody has a full New Testament manuscript until, give or take, the middle of, of the 4th century, the, the 350s. And so uh, if you are in one of the communities that only has Mark's gospel, it sure looks like you got gypped because you don't, you don't get the end. And so likely somebody who maybe traveled, maybe spent time at, a, at another congregation, say in Rome or in, in Alexandria, um, had the opportunity to read and see John's gospel or Luke's gospel and took those endings and kind of amalgamated them right. into an ending that they could put in Mark. Not, again, to change the story, but to kind of finish the story. Okay, so that makes sense to me. Uh, At some point in time, someone uh, added this ending to Mark so that the readers would understand the rest of the story, who maybe didn't have access to Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel uh, or John's gospel or the book of Acts. Uh, But let's maybe make it a little more complicated because I know, and I'm dying to ask you this question, uh, there are actually four possible endings to the book of Mark. Uh, so explain that to us, uh, the rest of, or these other endings to the book of Mark. So the first ending is where most people believe it stops is just at verse 8. Verse 8. Right, right. verse 8. The second ending is what we all have in our Bible, which is this 9 through 20. All the way through verse 20. Yeah, okay. where, where we've got many Bibles, most every translation now has this little statement that says, Early manuscripts didn't include this, and so that's a helpful guide. Um, and then we read on, and, and it's got 9 through 20, where we kind of see some weird things, uh, to be honest. 
There is a, a third version, which is just a, a short, like a shortened version of 9 through 20. And um, like I, so I have um, the ESV in front of me and also the CSB. And both of those in a footnote contain uh, the, the short version. Right. And so it reads this way. But they reported briefly to Peter, talking about the women, because that's where verse 8 ends in Mark's gospel. The women have, have seen that the tomb is empty, and they are uh, met by the angel, and they are afraid and frightened, and they run, and, and they don't say anything. And so that, that kind of makes the women look bad. And so then uh, this shorter ending says, they being the women, reported briefly to Peter and those with them all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So that's, that's what's called the shortened extra ending to Mark. So right. you've got cutting it off at 8, you've got it going all the way to verse 20, then the third option is just this very short, and then the fourth ending is adding both the long ending and the short, short ending, ending yeah. to Mark. And so you've got four four options. And without going into the technical aspects, there are a number of reasons, but um, because of the evidence of the manuscripts that we have, the earliest, the, 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 the ones that were, that were written or copied most closely to when Mark would have um, finished his copy, uh, as well as the testimony of really important uh, church figures, or we call them church fathers, who were theologians and historians, and when they talk about Mark's gospel, they cut it off at verse 8. That leads us to have a fairly certain, I would say almost concrete certainty, that this is where Mark intended, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to stop his story. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that what was added is bad, necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's untruthful. It, it just means that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not the one who wrote these things. Right. Okay. So I'm thinking of somebody listening to this uh, has a high view of the Bible, and they're hearing you now kind of describe uh, these variations or these different endings and that sort of thing. And I could just imagine somebody going like, well, are there more? And if there are more, how many more? And is it possible that there's a lot of the Bible that has been, uh, th that might not be original? So how would yeah. you maybe comfort that person or help that person uh, if that's their question? I think there are two tracks here, and I want to briefly cover both so that there's no misunderstanding. There are thousands and thousands of what I would call variations. Right within all of the manuscripts or the fragments. This is back to the Tesla illustration that you used, Exactly. Right? So um, we, have, we have tens of thousands of fragments of biblical text. And by a fragment, I mean, think about um, tearing off a corner of a piece of, of paper, of a book, and maybe you've got seven or eight words. That's a fragment. We have, we have countless fragments of biblical texts and then we have thousands of full manuscripts where, if we're talking about Mark's gospel, we would have it from chapter 1 to chapter 16, the whole thing. And so there are thousands of variations, and, and it, that doesn't bother me in the least because by variation we're talking 
almost always about misspelled words. Right. And I don't know about you, but I am a horrible speller. <laughs> and so I don't mind at all a misspelled word. If somebody is, is writing something out and I'm reading it, half the time when I'm reading, I don't even realize that the word is misspelled. I know what their intention is. Um, other times, mistakes are uh, a mistake in, in transposition. That means uh, putting one word in a place that it's not supposed to be. So um, sometimes when we're talking, we accidentally uh, transpose words and we put one word in front of a different word or one word behind another word. And so um, so in the, in the large stream of New Testament textual criticism, 99.9% of what we would call variations are these simple things that I, I don't believe any, any person um, would have a general problem with. And, and in the transmission process, because there was not a movable type press or, or a, a, a printing press, this hand copying lends itself to unintentional errors. And so, or, or not errors, but just variations, variations or, or accidental mistakes, right? So, so on the on the one tract, there are thousands of variants, but they don't produce any conflict or or problems when we're looking at um, our our faith or our trustworthiness in the scriptures. Right. So that's the first dream. That's and the first dream. I just want to make sure I understand you clearly. What you would say there is, for scholars who do this sort of work, it is very clear what is a what is original and what's not when you're dealing with those sorts of variants. So there's an entire science called right. textual criticism. Think of it like um, like uh, crime scene investigators, right. right? They have spent countless years and hours training to know, when I see this evidence, I know that it means this. Or when I put these eight pieces of evidence that I found at a crime scene, which is you know uh, a blood spatter stain or the trajectory of a bullet or... Um, a, a fragment of something. I could put all of those together, and I can make a I can make a case for what that's happened right. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what textual criticism is, and that's not just for the Bible. That's, that's exactly all right. All of ancient literature. So one of the things that that um, Christian apologists, when they're talking about the reliability of the Bible, they talk about how recent our manuscripts and fragments are relative to the original writing. So let's think, for instance, probably one of the most famous books in all of antiquity would be Homer's Iliad, right? And probably most of your listeners have read or, or, or seen a movie or at least have some familiarity with the Iliad. It was assigned to them in 10th grade, That's but they right, never read it. Whether they read it or not, right. and they read the Cliff Notes version, right? So Homer wrote the Iliad, give or take, around 750 B.C. So if you want to put that into biblical perspectives, it's about the time... The northern kingdom was being invaded by Assyria. And so we're talking a long, long time ago, right. right? So that's when Homer sits down and writes this Greek tragedy. Well, the first fragment that we have from the Iliad is about 300 years later. So think about middle 400 BCs. And the first full manuscript we have of the Iliad is like 1,200 years. So uh, think about... Um, I'm horrible with math. So seven, three, 
five or six hundred A.D. Yeah, it, it's twelve or thirteen hundred years right. after the original writing. There's a good job carrying the one. So yeah, I, good I, job. I'm horrible at math. <laughs> the Bible is wholly different. We've got we've got fragments from as recent as say twenty years after the original penmanship or authorship of. Let's just pick a book, Philippians, right? right? So Paul writes Philippians, give or take 61 AD. We've got fragments of, maybe not necessarily Philippians, I'm just using an example. Maybe it's Colossians, maybe it's Ephesians. We've got fragments of those letters as soon as, say, 70 or 80 AD. Right, very close. And then we've got full manuscripts, say, like 100 years after that. And so the the difference or the the, the probability of, of truthfulness um, between what the Iliad said when Homer wrote it versus the first manuscript versus what we have in the Bible, the the probability or the the, the likelihood of it being what we read in our Bibles as being what Paul wrote or what Luke wrote is is infinitely greater or at a greater percentage. And, And scholars... They don't have any, like, secular scholars, not to disparage them, they don't have any problem believing that when they open up the Iliad that they're reading Homer's words, even though there's a 1,200-year difference between the, the, first, the first writing of right. it and then the, the, the oldest complete manuscript. And so Christians don't, shouldn't have any problems. And if you're hearing this for the first time, I, you know, I, I understand that it, it might be a little jarring, but we have full confidence that what we have in front of us when you open up your Bible is what God intended for Paul to write or Luke to write or Matthew to write. Right? So that's, that's one thing, yeah, yeah. these, these variations. The, the, the other, second thing you have in mind. The other is, is this. There are, there are three, I would say three, primary passages where due to the science of textual criticism, we have determined or discovered that there are a couple of passages that we just radically and, and, and confidently believe were not in the original. So the ending of Mark is one. The second is a very famous passage at the end of John chapter 7, and, and it bleeds over into John 8. It's the story of the woman who's caught in adultery, and the, and the leaders bring her in front of Jesus, and he uh, bends down on the ground and writes some stuff in the dirt, and you know the famous uh, phrase, you know, he who is without sin should right. cast the first stone. If you look in the footnotes, or depending on the translation, there might be, just like in Mark, this um, this notation inside the text. But most will say this story is not found in the oldest or the 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 the, the most reliable manuscripts. The, it is found in manuscripts, but not the ones that we trust the most. Mm-hmm. Just like in um, in the ending of Mark, and then there's a a third example, and that's in First uh, John, chapter five. And John, First uh, John, is written by uh, John the Apostle, and there's a, a wonderful uh, passage that talks about um, uh, what appears to be a, a, um, a visual representation of the Trinity, which is wonderful. I, I love the Trinity. Um, and so this is what John says, beginning in verse 7, for there are three that testify. This is me reading out of the, um, the Christian Standard Bible. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. And if your Bible has a footnote on this verse, you can come down and read that it says this. 
a few late Greek manuscripts and some Vulgate manuscripts add the following phrase, and testify in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And so what, what I think is going on here, what, what scholars and church historians believe, is that someone probably around 1000 AD or 1100 AD is in a monastery somewhere, some, some Roman Catholic monk, he's reading his Bible, he sees this passage and he says, wow, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, and they all testify. That sounds a lot like, not in any particular order, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so maybe, just like I do, he wrote a little note in, in the margin that right. said, this reminds me of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then maybe his Bible got passed down to another monk, and then another monk, and then another monk, and somehow in the transcription process, in the copying of, of manuscripts, because it could very well be that that monastery only had one Bible, right. and then maybe it started, the binding started to mess up or, or something, and they decided, or, or we're going to send out a missionary from our ranks, and he needs a copy of the Scripture, so we're going to handwrite it. And somehow that little margin in, or that little note in the margin got put into the text. But we are confident that that's not what John wrote. Right. And so we have these three instances at the end of Mark, the middle of John, and the end of 1 John, where we can say there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with, with what's in here. It's not a lie. It's not, it's not false. It doesn't say that God loves sin or, or that Jesus right. wasn't... God, there, there's no, no lie. None of the examples would change any theological position or our understanding of God, Jesus the Son, what the Scripture is, nothing like that. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, it, it, it's important to know um, how to read these texts. It's also important to know that these texts don't cause us to waver in what we do or should right. believe about the Scriptures and about the Trinity and about salvation. Um, they're not, they're not, no foundational doctrine of the Christian church is affected whether these passages are included in the Scriptures or whether they are removed. Let's just say tomorrow a, a Bible translation comes out and, and Mark ends at 16.8. No, and no, no, anything. No, it just it. stops at eight, and and so and let's say that uh, that the end of of John seven and the beginning of John eight, it's just not there. Or this particular phrase in in First John five eight, it's not there. We would still look at the scriptures and say God is is, is triune, right. right? That Jesus um, was was the Son of God who gave Himself as a ransom for many. That that the church is established because the Spirit came at Pentecost and indwells in believers that we are to be baptized into union with Christ, that we are to love one another, um, uh, we are to love our enemies. And so these truths, um, they don't rise and fall, they don't hinge on, uh, on these passages that, right. that we've determined um, aren't original. And I would say, I, I don't know how many others would say this, and I don't mean to open up a can of worms, but like, I don't think that they should be in the text. Well, man, I think this is a good place to stop because this is very much just like you. To end 
in a slightly controversial way. Like, I, I like it. I like it. Listen, uh, I know we talked about a lot today. If you're listening uh, and you have some questions, uh, you can always email those questions to me, uh, Brandon at MercyHill.com. We'd love to follow up with you and answer any questions you have. I know there's a lot to take in today, uh, but I think the takeaway is uh, that we have confidence in our Bibles uh, because translators are up front telling us the truth. Uh, they're pointing out what might be original and might not. Those examples are very limited, uh, and um, and just like Jason explained, uh, that we have all sorts of documentation uh, all throughout history, more so uh, for the New Testament than any other book in antiquity. And so you can have confidence today in the Scripture that you are hopefully going to read at some point today. All right, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us on the Mercy Hill Podcast. I hope today's conversation with Jason Sampler helped you to grow in your understanding of how we got our Bibles, what we currently hold in our hands when we open our Bibles. Even more than that, though, I hope this conversation uh, helps you to have confidence in your Bible, uh, to know that what you have, what you read, what you pray through, uh, what you meditate on, what you journal through, uh, is what was written down originally by Jesus' apostles and is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We look forward to seeing you again. Until next time, have a great week.